Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the Wall Street Journal called frontline workers like grocery store employees and food deliverers unexpected heroes of the COVID-19 pandemic, which should prompt the question, unexpected to whom? The truth is the U.S. has always relied on low-paid, unprotected workers for all kinds of services. Only now it's called a gig economy and celebrated by some as some radical way forward, offering workers flexibility and a chance to be your own boss. Strikes going on around the country right now are an indication of how workers themselves are reacting to this moment, in which it's being made painfully clear that they are deemed both essential and expendable at once. We'll talk about the gig economy with Bama Threya, Economic Inequality Fellow with the Open Society Foundations. That's coming up, but first a look back at some recent press. In a March 30th live appearance on the Fox network, Donald Trump said it was good that Democratic proposals for increased voting protections and ballot access, including vote-by-mail, same-day registration and early voting, as well as equipment and staffing to make voting safe during the pandemic, were not included in the coronavirus relief package. The things they had in there were crazy, Trump said. Quote, they had things, levels of voting that if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. Close quote. If Trump was guilty of saying the quiet part loud, as a number of commentators pointed out, the Washington Post can be charged with saying a straight thing crooked. In the Post's March 30th account, quote, Trump didn't expand on the thought but he clearly linked high turnout to Republicans losing elections. The most generous reading of his comment is that he was referring to large-scale voter fraud resulting from the easier vote-by-mail options. Trump has in the past baselessly speculated about millions of fraudulent votes helping Democrats in the 2016 election. The more nefarious reading would be that allowing more people to participate in the process legally would hurt his party, because there are more Democratic-leaning voters in the country, close quote. Well, which do you want to be, generous or nefarious? And baseless speculation about fraud? That's also known as lying, right? So now the generous reading is that a person who has lied about this very thing is lying about it again. There had to be a clearer way to get that across. The reporter, Aaron Blake, would likely say, if asked, that he believes and thinks readers will take away that nefarious reading. Yet here we have the specter of voter fraud, debunked again and again, including in the Post, being legitimized by consideration. Reporters may think this is tactful, grown-up language, when it's actually misleading, milquetoast language that does the opposite of what journalism is meant to do, which is clarify issues, break down doublespeak, and help readers understand what's happening, which is that the president of the country has declared himself an opponent of one-person, one-vote democracy. We already knew that, but he said it out loud on the record. The thing to do would be to take him at his word— and to assume that his actions have been and will be of a piece with this expressed view. And if you really want to get wild, you might actually be critical of this anti-democratic position 
call for resistance to it, and actually platform those who do resist it. Democracy dies in darkness, the post's Trump-era branding tells us. True, but sometimes also in broad daylight, if you smother it with blah, blah, blah. There's a boilerplate passage that the Associated Press likes to insert into its stories on the coronavirus, as in their March 30th piece, under the headline, What You Need to Know About the Virus Outbreak. It's the first language after the heading, What You Need to Know. Quote, For most people, the coronavirus causes mild or moderate symptoms, such as fever and cough, that clear up in two to three weeks. For some, especially older adults and people with existing health problems, it can cause more severe illness, including pneumonia and death. The vast majority of people recover, close quote. Well, that sounds reassuring, doesn't it? Especially if you're not an older adult or a person with existing health problems, you might even be thinking, what's the big deal? Well, for one thing, existing health problems are extremely common. Half of American adults have high blood pressure, one of the most prevalent pre-existing conditions among COVID-19 fatalities, according to a study of Italian deaths from the disease. Other common illnesses associated with coronavirus deaths include diabetes, which affects 9% of American adults, and coronary heart disease, which affects 7%. Altogether, according to the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, up to half of all non-elderly Americans have pre-existing health conditions. So the some that are liable to more severe illness may amount to most. African Americans, by the way, disproportionately suffer from high blood pressure and diabetes, as a race-aware media would be pointing out. A Centers for Disease Control report looked at domestically acquired cases of COVID-19 in the U.S. from February 12th to March 16th, a total of 4,200 cases, more or less. Of the patients whose ages were known, 70% were under 65. In this group, the hospitalization rates for patients 20 to 44 was at least 14%. For patients 45 to 54 and 55 to 64, it was at least 21%. Among the elderly, the hospitalization rate was about half again as high. Only patients under 20 had a hospitalization rate comparable to that of influenza, with at least 1.6% of cases in this group going to the hospital. Almost a quarter of the hospitalized patients required intensive care. Of these, nearly half were under 65. Only patients under 20, the report found, never needed intensive care. And some of those who require intensive care may never recover full lung capacity. These figures need to be understood in the context of the limits of the U.S. hospital system, which has less than a million beds and less than 80,000 intensive care beds. Even a small fraction of adults, elderly or otherwise, catching the coronavirus would risk totally overwhelming U.S. health care. The CDC's summary of its data sends a much different message than AP's boilerplate. Quote, COVID-19 can result in severe disease, including hospitalization, admission to an intensive care unit, and death, especially among older adults. Everyone can take actions, such as social distancing, to help slow the spread of COVID-19 and protect older adults from severe illness. Close quote. As for AP's claim that the vast majority of people recover... Of the roughly 140,000 U.S. cases to date, some 4,500 have recovered and 2,500 have died. The outcome of the rest has yet to be determined. 
In China, the only country where a major outbreak seems to have been brought under control, 93 percent of some 81,000 cases have been resolved, and of those resolved cases, 4 percent were fatal. By way of comparison, which AP's glib assurance to the vast majority fails to provide, the seasonal flu kills 0.1 to 0.2 percent of the people who come down with it. In China, officials moved quickly to pause economic activity and tested aggressively so asymptomatic carriers could be identified and isolated, preventing hospitals from being overwhelmed on a national level. The United States has so far failed to follow this example, and our major national news service lulling readers into a false sense of security only delays the time when we will begin to do so. Finally, you're reading stories about which corporations are doing right by workers, paying them, even through the closures made necessary by the pandemic. Reporting by BuzzFeed News says, hold up on that for a minute. BuzzFeed's Tasmin Nashrullah spoke with workers from big brand stores like Ann Taylor and American Eagle, now soaking up praise for announcing they would pay workers through the downturn. And workers say they aren't actually doing that. Our associates are at the heart of what we do, and they will be paid for their scheduled shifts during this time, announced Gary Mudo, the CEO of Asena Retail Group, whose brands include Ann Taylor, Loft, and Lewin Gray. That's in his announcement. After BuzzFeed News reached out to Ann Taylor for comment, the part about paying store associates was removed from the statement. That's the kind of shady that's going on, with workers saying the companies misled not just the public, but their own employees, sending messages saying they'd be paid for scheduled shifts and then just dropping them from the schedule. One American Eagle worker learned she'd be paid for zero hours because she was a flex associate, a term she'd never heard before. It feels like a dirty trick after what they said, because I could have started working on another job somewhere else three weeks ago wrote Jessica Slack in a note to her manager, who replied, I understand how frustrating it can be. Just know that you are not alone. Well, yeah. These workers aren't saying they don't understand that the stores are closing, but that management was anything but clear about what it would mean for them right up until the last second, while promoting their compassion to the wider world. Says Slack, They shouldn't get the press they're getting for being kind to their employees when they're not. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. As millions of Americans shelter in place as a result of COVID-19 and those who go out avoid public transportation, the reliance on food deliverers and car services is unavoidably clear. For some, that's cause for celebration. So convenient, so helpful. But it ought to be raising questions. What does it mean to rely on but not recognize the precarious workforce? Workers with low wages, low or no benefits, and no security. How can people be essential and expendable at the same time? As with so much of what's happening right now, the question is what's being learned from these workers' rare moment in the media sun? What, if anything, will change because of it? Because it turns out, having elite media call you a hero doesn't pay the rent. 
Our next guest works on this set of issues. Bama Athreya is an Economic Inequality Fellow with the Open Society Foundations. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Bama Athreya. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, while some are calling for concern or empathy for frontline workers, others see this moment as evidence of the success of the so-called gig economy. You wrote a piece recently, I saw it on Common Dreams, that you say was spurred by the gleeful celebration of the gig economy that you were seeing in some quarters. Before we talk about what's the matter with that, what are these folks actually celebrating? What is the vision that's being promoted here? I think I can explain that best by explaining that I have uh, spent most of my career working on labor rights with workers in other countries and not the United States. And one of the interesting things about this year and the work I'm doing with Open Society Foundations is I'm looking at what's happening in the U.S. economy for the first time. But the fact is that kind of economy that's being celebrated by the 1% is, frankly, the same economy that's existed in a lot of other countries for a long time. It's the economy where if you are wealthy, you can find somebody to do anything you need doing. Go pick up your food or bring it to your door, you know, drive you around, clean your house, whatever service you need, you can get it. You can get it cheaply. Because people are in what we call precarious work, and most people are in precarious work. They don't have formal, full-time jobs with benefits. They don't have regular wages. So this celebration of the quote-unquote gig economy here, most of it is really just what we're really witnessing is pushing people into this kind of precarious work in the U.S. You say that uh, some folks are even imagining that folks who are laid off from waged work or salaried work, like in the airline industry, that somehow the gig economy is going to absorb these people? Uh, The gig economy here, you know, if you kind of look at the positive spin on it that you hear in many quarters, it's celebrated as being flexible. I mean, the reality is, and I'm certainly not the first person who's, who's pointed this out, is you saw the rise of some of these app-based companies like Uber and Instacart and the like in the wake of the 2009 economic crisis and downturn. And at that time, you started to see these kinds of arguments of, oh, well, it's okay because, you know, people may be losing regular jobs, but this new gig economy will absorb everybody. You can always take your car, you can take your apartment, you can take whatever asset you have and get on a platform or an app and make some money out of it. That was kind of the first time I started noticing and saying, well, this is what people do everywhere else in the world, right? So why is this a great thing when you see it start to happen in the U.S. economy? And now if you look at the kinds of reporting, I mean, one of the pieces I called out was the Wall Street Journal. I feel like if you want to know what that 1% wants to have happen post this pandemic in the recovery Just read the Wall Street Journal editorial pages. They put it right out there, you know, and one of the things that they've been celebrating 
to that audience is the fact that more and more people will be in precarious work in the gig economy, and won't that be great for investors? Well, I just wanted to pick up on that. There was a study that came out in January from a workers' rights group in Washington State that found that contract delivery drivers for DoorDash, the food delivery service, were making a dollar and forty-five cents an hour on average after their expenses were accounted for. And the company is promoting these jobs, as you've just said, as be your own boss, enjoy the flexibility of choosing when, where, and how much you earn. There's this pay model that makes it look on paper like workers are getting a decent wage when in reality some are making like right around zero, you know, but investors love it. There's a huge disconnect there, it seems like. Yeah, I don't know if it's a disconnect. I will say like I've seen the work that's been done in Washington State. The activists there are fantastic. I've done more of my interviews with people who are driving for Uber and Lyft and, you know, and other app-based ride-hailing companies. I think this is the business model, uh, and I don't think it's new. One of the things that we've seen in terms of how the financialization of various sectors has operated over the past couple of decades is that the markets, such as they are, reward companies that undermine formal wage employment with benefits, right? I mean, the more you can put people on short-term work and contract work and just in time and, you know, the more you can fracture regular full-time paid employment, the better your returns, right? And so just seeing that come into the transportation sector, I mean, that is the business model or the delivery sector, right? That is the business model. Yeah. The disconnect is only in sort of the forward face of it. And I guess it's more just kind of um, deception might be a better word. Well, well, so much of media is from a consumer point of view. So if you hear that, you know, precarious workers are suffering, it's as though, well, that's the fault of the people who use Lyft because the bus doesn't go by their house or that's the fault of you for ordering a pizza in your home. You don't have to reject the whole idea of a digital economy in order to think that it could be done more fairly and more humanely, right? I have to say this week has been quite a week, and I hope you are talking to some of the folks that are organizing the strikes of gig workers in you know different parts of the country that have been going on all week. It's, it's been amazing to see. So that, I think, is the thing we all need to be doing is paying attention to those calls for action and supporting them wherever you can. Like, don't order from Instacart this week. Don't order from Amazon this week. Respect the fact that those workers are on strike. Sign petitions to the companies to give them the protective equipment and the benefits and the sick pay that they need. And I would sort of refer people to the Athena for All Coalition. I would refer people to coworker.org, to Gig Workers Rising. There's a lot of information being put out there right now about what we all can do to support these workers who are striking for just you know, the right to be safe and not be at risk of losing their lives to this terrible disease. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about a related set of ideas. You had a piece on Medium called a feminist stimulus that addresses the care work, as it's called, that is also being foregrounded right now. And I guess the failure to address that work as we talk about economic recovery. What are you getting at in this piece about care work and how it can be acknowledged? Sure. Thanks 
for asking about that. I mean, as we are looking at these large packages that are intended to sort of shore up the economy at this time, I do think we need to predict what's going to happen when the crisis is over, as eventually it will be. And we need to go into a long-term recovery because our economy is going to take a hit, and, you know, and global economies are going to take a hit for a long time. And I think we need to get ahead of some of the proposals that are being put out there and make sure this turns into a people's recovery that's good for people and not just good for markets in the abstract. So some people have been talking about a universal basic income. That's fine. I mean, I think it's healthy to have those debates out there. But one of the things that's frustrated me for a long time of following the proposals around UBI, which is the shorthand for universal basic income, is that like largely written by men, and they're largely gender blind. And that was very frustrating because I literally kept seeing things in writings by, you know, people who are well-respected leaders in this field talking about how UBI was good for women because it meant that women could stay home and do care work and get paid for it. And that just ignores the obvious fallacy, which is that no one's paying women to do care work. Right. I mean, care work is unpaid, largely undervalued where it is paid, and that needs to get corrected. And UBI is not going to do that if we don't take some measures to stop that from happening. It will end up just reinforcing the notion that women should be doing unpaid care work. And I'll give you one example of that. There was actually a referendum in Switzerland a couple of years ago to provide UBI to every citizen. That went for a vote. It failed. But I read through some of the arguments that the proponents of that referendum had made at the time, and it was really interesting because the proponents that were out there trying to sell this UBI proposal to the Swiss population were precisely making the argument that it would enable women to stay home and take care of kids. And that belied the reality that the men or the people – who stayed in wage employment, we're still going to be getting that same UBI because it's a UBI. It's universal, right? So everybody gets it, whether you work or not. So the women who were going to stay home were not going to get paid for care work. They were just going to get the stipend that everybody that was in the working world, the paid wage labor world, was getting. And, and this seems to be this fallacy that comes up over and over and over again, and I just you know, wanted to put an end to that and to say if we are now recognizing that We will have many, many people in this society coming out of this coronavirus crisis that are sick, that are vulnerable. We will have communities at need. We will have poor children at need. We will need more care workers than ever. So we had better figure out how to start properly valuing and paying for care work. Because otherwise, there's going to be this huge, 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 enormous unpaid care burden, and guess who it's going to fall on? What we need to do, again, is quantify the value of the unpaid care work that's going on in our economy now, and then predict how much more is going to be needed during the recovery period. And let's figure out how to get the money into the economy to pay the people to do the care work that we're really going to need done. You know, media promote a fiction, usually tacitly, that economic fortunes are natural. You know, some work is just worth more than other work. You know, folks say 
gosh, teachers work so hard, it really stinks that they don't get paid a lot. But it's as though nature wants it that way or something. Teachers just take a vow of poverty. God bless them. There's a notion of the naturalness of obtaining economic conditions that has to be resisted. But it's really not that easy to do that. I think even when you see good data from progressive economists, you also see a lot of sort of bad faith arguments out there about what will stimulate the economy. And I think it helps to just pull ourselves back to a central question, and that is whose economy? It is not an abstract thing, right? And so when you see the kinds of talking heads that you very often see called up for news programs, et cetera, and they are wealthy individuals, they are corporate CEOs, they are people who are doing very well, they are talking about the economy that benefits them. We need to start thinking about and talking about what an economy looks like that benefits your average childcare worker. And if that is the starting point and the premise and you're interviewing those people and asking them what they think a fair economy looks like, you do have to have, I think you're pointing this out, a change in the very way in which we conceptualize the economy. Well, let me just ask you for any final thoughts you have. Obviously, this is going to be the fodder in the news that we're going to be seeing for weeks and months now. Are there questions you would be encouraging reporters to pursue or, on the other hand, things you'd like them to not do, things to avoid doing? I would just encourage interview the people who are kind of on the front lines of this as much as possible. I super appreciate that you've reached out to me. I hope you're also interviewing people who are actually having to deliver groceries or, or deliver, you know, take out food and, and getting their perspectives on what it's like to be looking at, you know, the realities of the health care that they're offered, the realities of the wages and the, the types of safety nets around them. You know, and I think that's where journalists really can play an amazing role. And I wish, you know, I actually wish we had more local journalists because I think one of our challenges now is that you need people who are also paid to go and interview people in the local communities about what's happening to them. Well, we've been speaking with Bama Threa. You can find her piece of feminist stimulus on medium.com. And a pandemic is no time for precarious work on inequality.org, as well as common dreams. Thank you very much, Bama Threa, for joining us this week on Counterspin. It's been great. Thank you so much, Janine. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The show's engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.